now we have the opportunity to continue to worship in the reading of God's Word. So I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm 139, and we'll read that psalm. And Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me shall be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, for the night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. Would you please join with me in prayer? O God, that you have searched us and known us that you know every one of our ways, every word that comes out of our mouths, every thought that crosses our minds, O oh Lord, you know it. Every one of our actions, righteous or wicked, you are aware of. Nothing is hidden from you, O oh God, and we can hide nothing from you even if we try. So Lord, we pray to you this morning that we would live as one's who are ever in the presence of the Most High God. That what we do in secret and what we do in private and what we do in public and what we do in front of many, Lord, that all of these things would be in accordance with your command and your will and your word. Let us not think for a second that we can hide anything from you. And let us not have calloused hearts that we 
are willing to do things that are wicked and against you even though we know you see them. May we live as ones who are in your presence, O God. And Lord, we thank you for the brothers and the sisters who are here with us joining to worship in person today. We thank you for the opportunity to broadcast this service and that our brothers and sisters can join with us online. Lord, we know that there are many among us who are sick, many among us who have not come to the service today because they are ill. And Lord, we ask that your hand of healing would be upon them, that you would bring them back to full health, that they might join in person again, that they might continue to worship together with us in person. And Lord, that even from their living rooms or wherever they are and wherever you take them in this coming week, that you would continue to glorify yourself in them. May they take the opportunity that sickness provides, the somewhat slower pace of things that often comes along with it, and may they use it for your glory. Praying of people who are ill or hurting, Lord, we think of the Gadwa family, particularly of uh, Dana's mom, Donna, and we thank you for the improvement she has shown already and for the medical care that she has received and pray that you continue to strengthen and heal her. Strengthen and heal that family as they are struggling with the, the condition that Donna is going through. And Lord, we ask that somehow in some way you would be glorified even in that. And God, even as many of us celebrated yesterday a time of remembrance, a time of remembrance for those who would sacrifice, Lord, we acknowledge that your word says greater love has no man than this than one would lay down his life for a friend, for a brother. And yet there have been many men and women throughout our nation's history that have laid down their lives for people they would not even know or meet. And men and women who are continuing to do so. We thank you for the service men and women in the armed forces of our country and we pray that you would be with them. We pray that you would show them how they can do their work, how they can protect those who need protecting and do so in a way that would glorify you. Lord, we pray particularly for the believers within these forces that they might share your name boldly, regardless of the consequences, that they would not be silenced. And that these men and women who are willing to lay down their lives for the good of their country and the good of others would be aware of the one who has laid down his life for his people, your son, Jesus Christ. God, also today we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. We continue to pray for our sister church in the Philippines, DeSalle Baptist Church, as well as the ministries of Pastor June and Amy and Pastors Roly and his wife Marilyn. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in the Philippines, that 
the true gospel which comes from your word, the truth that pours forth from your word would pour forth into the country of Canada as well as the country of the Philippines, that we might see your gospel at work. We pray that you would revive our hearts, that you would bring revival to our community and our land as well as the land of the Philippines and their surrounding nations, Lord. Lord, that your gospel might be proclaimed throughout all the earth, and we pray that as your gospel is proclaimed, we also pray for the return of your Son. Lord, our world is broken. We talk so much in Genesis' first few chapters, Lord, of the entrance of sin into our world, and we long for the day when sin is no more. When death's sting is taken away, when we can look forward and see you face to face that what we believe now by faith might be replaced by sight and we might worship you in spirit and in truth and face to face, Lord. Lord, send your Son to come again soon. And may we live as ones who are on the precipice of your Son's return. May we declare your gospel and not shirk any opportunity we are given to speak your truth to those whom we meet. For we do not know the day nor the hour when you may return. So Lord, we commit this service to you and each one who is here. Ask that through the preaching of your word that you might be lifted up and your people might be equipped that we can go forth and minister to one another, to our families, to our friends, and to all that we would meet. We thank you for these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a reminder for those of us with kids, there is no children's church today. And now we have the opportunity to get into Genesis chapter 3. Looking at Genesis chapter 3, I was thinking to myself that there are few things that I can think of more relaxing than a nice leisurely stroll in nature, particularly on a summer evening as the day cools. Everything seems to come alive as the heat fades and the breezes begin. What makes it even better is a loved one to share it with, whether it be family or your romantic partner or your dear friend, to just walk in the cool of the day and enjoy the fingerprints of our God imprinted on all of the nature around us is one of the most incredible and relaxing things. And yet it is in this very situation that the depths of Adam and Eve's rejection of the Lord first really become truly apparent. So on that note, I'll ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 7. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, 
I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the servant deceived me, and I ate. This is God's word. What must it have been like to walk with God? To walk with him in the cool of the day, in the garden that he has created. To worship him and to commune with him totally unhindered and unashamed. There's a reason why, as we continue throughout Genesis, to walk with God became synonymous for being in right relationship with him. From Genesis chapter 5, we have the story of Enoch. And in verse 22 of Genesis 5, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. And the next chapter, Genesis 6, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Adam was to walk with God. And when God comes in the cool of the day walking in the garden, what do Adam and Eve do? Where are they? Do they walk with him? They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Those of you who have been with us for a little bit, back in, I believe it was November of last year, we, we talked about an account of someone who attempted a similar feat. Prophet Jonah, commissioned by the Lord and told, Arise and go to Nineveh. But Jonah arose and fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And all of us are quite familiar with how that whole process panned out. Jonah flees from the Lord. He ends up swallowed and vomited and eventually going and doing what he was told to do in the first place. But Jonah was just doing what his forefather did. He fooled himself into thinking that there was a chance that he could escape from the Lord's presence. Maybe he could flee far enough that God could not reach him. Following Adam's example, Adam and Eve, before even being confronted with their sin, they have sinned, they have eaten of this tree and they have not yet interacted with God. This is kind of an intermediate place that they're in. But they already know. They know right away. They sow fig leaves because they know that they're naked. They hear God and their first reaction, the shame that is in their hearts, their first reaction is that they would hide. 
They know that they have to cover themselves before the holiness of God. They hide themselves in the garden, hiding themselves with and among the very trees and plants that God had provided for them for sustenance. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? What an odd phrase for us to find in Scripture. God walking in the garden. Where are you? We just read Psalm 139, starting in verse 7. Where shall I go from your presence, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Where are you? Where are you? Had Adam hidden himself so well in the bushes that God could not see him? Of course not. So we have to contend when we read this, if we're thinking we have to deal with this question, why is God asking that question? Why is God calling out to Adam, where are you? God is omniscient. He is everywhere present. He's walking in the garden and he asks this, where are you? We'll face a similar question when we get to Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Did God not know? What Cain had just done? God was not unaware of Adam and Eve's sin, nor would he be unaware of Cain's. He knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what they had done. Knowing God's asking of these questions, we get to see the incredible and undeniable love and grace of a God who loves us a love that would pursue and initiate restoration, even knowing that justice must still be done, even knowing the price that restoration, the satisfaction of that justice would require. Step into a dream world for me for a moment. Your children are out in the backyard playing baseball. You hear all sorts of joyful noises. They're playing around and then crash. You hear the sound of broken glass, and you can see the shattered window. All of a sudden, you don't hear children anymore. It's just this hush falls over them. And at that moment, you as a parent have a few different options kind of waiting in front of you. You could wait. Pretend you saw nothing. Pretend you heard nothing. Let's see how long it takes for them to say something. Are they going to say anything? Are they just going to hope I don't notice that this window is smashed over here? Option number two, you could roll outside like a thundercloud, demanding the details and the guilty party and executing swift corrective measures on the offender who smashed your window. Option number three, you can call them all inside and ask the question. what happened? What happened? You know full well the answer. Maybe you even saw the person who smashed the window. But this is their chance. Come clean. What happened? When reflecting on our passage, 
Um, Charles Spurgeon talked a little bit about that option number one, just waiting and pretending that they heard and saw nothing. Spurgeon said, it would have been the worst thing that could have happened to our race if God had left this planet to take its own course and had said concerning the people in it, I will leave them to their own way, for they are given over to their idols. Had God opted for option number one, Let's just see how long it'll take for them to come clean. I would imagine that here today, Adam and Eve would still be skulking around in that garden. Tortured and terrified at the thought that someday they might be found out. A skeletal existence with no hope of restoration, flinching at even the thought of God's presence. Option number two might be very well what we would have expected from God in this situation. His greatest creation, the height and pinnacle of the created order, has rebelled against him. The very ones that were created for the express purpose of worshiping and glorifying him have turned their backs on him and the one commandment that he had given them. Why should God not show up with a wrathful, how dare you, and just wipe them from existence, even as he would later do with most of mankind in the great flood. Start over. Nope, we're trying this again. But rather than waiting Adam and Eve out, prolonging their suffering, or descending upon them in wrath and fire, God, by his mercy and his grace, walks one more time with them in the garden and calls to them. Where are you? This where are you is not ignorance on God's part. Instead, it's God lovingly extending his invitation to repentance and confession. Where are you is God's compassionate. But what happened? And Adam, if he were to respond as he ought to have, should have come with this contrite heart and penitent attitude confessing outright before God his sin. I mean, think of the responses of Isaiah and Peter when they were just confronted by God by, as who he is. They aren't being indicted for a specific sin. This is just God showing up in front of them. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But that is not Adam's response. Adam recognizes that God's call is more than just looking for the man that he had made. God shows up, where are you? And he has this immediate response. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam knows immediately that at least in his mind, he has to defend himself. I have done wrong. I have to come up with a reason and excuse. Where are you? I was hiding, but I was hiding only because I was naked and I, was, I didn't want to. Adam doesn't outright deny wrongdoing. See if this is familiar to you. He leads with the mildest version of the truth. 
Well, I was hiding because I was naked. Yeah, why do you know you were naked, Adam? But as we know, light dispels darkness, and our God is not satisfied with a half-truth. And in his grace, he sweeps all the cobwebs and the pretense aside and asks directly, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? When Jesus was praying for his disciples in his high priestly prayer, he asked God that he would sanctify these disciples in truth for his word is truth. To the Samaritan woman at the well, he declares, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Sometimes we forget, but our God is an all-consuming fire. He will burn away all chaff and all falsehood and all sin. And the sharpening of this inquisition, where are you, becomes who told you and have you eaten. Still, love. Still not wiping them off the earth. Still not just washing his hands of them and walking away. Truth is not relative. It wasn't relative in creation and it isn't relative now. Our God is the criteria and the sum of truth and he doesn't bear with Adam taking the exact same tack that the serpent just did with Eve. Did God really say half-truth? Almost lies. Adam takes that exact same path, this cocktail of truth and falsehood, and yet still, even when God sharpens his question, Adam persists. That pride that attends our sin, this need to self-justify at any expense, it goes on full display when Adam says, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The immediate kind of sense in our mind is, look, he's blaming Eve for this. But he does so much more than that. He does blame Eve, but ultimately, the way that the language of this passage works He's not only blaming his partner, the one, may I remind you, over whom he was placed in authority and who he was responsible for protecting, who he was supposed to lead. Not only does he blame her and throw her under the bus. No, Adam goes further than that. He shifts the blame and the grammar in this sentence, this woman that you gave to me. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? This woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Adam insinuates very clearly that the ultimate fault for his sin is none other than the God who is totally without sin, who is totally holy and totally perfect. And just think of the switch that we have here. In chapter 2, verse 22 and following, we have this creation of man and woman. 
the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This like poetic exclamation, look at this incredible good gift that God has given to me. He cries out to God, God, you have finally given me what I was missing. And now Adam treats this gift like Snow White's poisoned apple and ultimately sets his crosshairs squarely on the giver of all good gifts. You gave me this woman. Having said all this, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of James. Chapter 1. With all of what we're talking about here in mind. Here, James chapter 1 and starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Does that passage hit a little bit differently when we think about Genesis chapter 3? I think James's eyes, when he's writing this, is looking, flipping back and forth to Genesis chapter 3. Adam has the gall to insinuate that God should bear the blame for his sin. But God, as we've seen in our previous time examining the first two chapters of Genesis, this creation, God is the giver of good gifts. Every good and perfect gift is from him, but sin finds its roots in our own hearts and our own desires. But setting all of Adam's protests, all of Adam's attempts to justify himself aside, you wipe that smoke screen away and you can find in all of what Adam has to say there are two words that matter to God. Those two words are the answer to God's question and they mark the moment where God moves on from Adam. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Bunch of exclamation, bunch of, oh, but, oh, but, I ate. Did you eat? I ate. And we kind of walk backwards through the subjects of verses 1 through 6. So he receives, God receives this admission of guilt from Adam however qualified it might be, at least Adam 
admits, and God turns to Eve. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Adam has utterly failed in his role as a leader and a protector for Eve. He's completely failed in his job. And Eve has entirely failed in her role as a helper. Instead of helping Adam and submitting to his leadership because she had been told what not to do with the tree, Eve takes the wheel and just drives straight into the nearest ditch. Again, given God's conversation with Adam, there's this another rhetorical question. What is this that you have done? God knows, but does she know? Does she comprehend the repercussions of her actions? Does she grasp what she has done? Don't you see what you have done? And how does Eve respond? little bit better than Adam, but not by much. She still follows that human penchant for, oh, I can't, I got to take someone down with me or at least shift some of the blame. Well, the, the serpent deceived me. Eve at least can rightly claim to being deceived. She at least has that going for her. Paul, when writing to the church in Corinth, he said, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Eve was deceived. She was a victim in some sense here. The serpent should absolutely receive blame. Adam should absolutely receive blame for failing to lead and protect his wife. But regardless of the excuses and the technicalities of the who, what, when, where, and why, two words, I ate. You were told not to eat. doesn't matter what your excuses are. Did you or did you not eat? I ate. And this is where we get to put a point on things for ourselves. We need to continue to do a better job of asking each other and asking ourselves pointed questions. Penetrating questions that leave no room for excuses, no room for blame shifting, no room for diversions, did you eat the fruit or did you not? Have you sinned or have you not? Scripture tells us what is right and what is wrong. Have you done this or not? And then we need to skip the half-truths, skip the excuses, skip the outright lies that we tell to make ourselves feel better about our own sin, the lies that we tell to try and cover up our sin before Oh, can't let the church people know that I'm a sinner. Our sin, in all its ugly and detestable and revolting foulness, needs to be laid bare before God. Just as Adam and Eve's did. From 1 John 1. 
This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Our old sinful man that still is at war within us, if we are in Christ, that old sinful man he squirms and he rises like a worm trapped on the summer pavement in the sunlight when he is laid bare before the ruthless truthfulness of God's word. And just like that very worm, our sins, our sinful man has a way of shriveling up and losing his power when kept and forcibly exposed to the light of God. We have this God who already knows our innermost thoughts. We have this God who already knows and is already aware of everything that we have done in thought or in deed. Our God, before whom if we are in Christ, he has already paid for our vile actions. God not only knows what you have done, God already knows that his son had to die because of that if we are in Christ. Before him, we must confess our sin. To both Adam and Eve's credit, and I mean this sincerely, they get a lot of flack, but I don't think any one of us would have fared a whole lot better. To their credit, for all of their excuses, they eventually do confess their sin. I ate. Yes, I did. They do not lie to God. They confess, and in doing so, they maintain their relationship with God. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Remember that quote from Spurgeon? God doesn't leave mankind to their own devices, waiting to see if they would confess. No, instead, he lovingly and kindly, as a father who is calling his children to an account, he unyieldingly and pointedly, he doesn't let them off the hook, but lovingly, he leads Adam and Eve to confess their sin. We could take a look at this passage and miss that this is God drawing his people to confession. For if they were to hold on to their sin, if they were to refuse to confess it, if God would have left it as, oh, well, I was hiding because I was naked, and God would go, oh, that's how we're going to play it? Okay, let's see how long it takes for the real truth to come out. 
if they were to hold on to their sin, lying before even God himself, how then could they be reconciled to him? How can there be any reconciliation when there's not truth? We are all responsible to confess our sin before God and give no safe harbor, no excuses to all of our wickedness. If we confess our sin to him, he is faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This whole discourse between Adam and Eve and Yahweh that we're examining here this morning, it's God drawing his people, his creation, the ones that he loves, to confession that he could again be restored to right relationship with them. Lord willing, next week we'll see that this confession in no way averts any kind of consequences from their sin. Did you eat? Yes, I ate. The next passage is the curse that falls upon the serpent and upon man and upon woman and upon the world. There, it doesn't avoid the consequences. Our sin will have consequences whether God has forgiven us or not. And we don't get out of those consequences just by confessing our sin before God. They all fall under God's just judgment here. But as we opened our passage this morning, the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That's how this starts. And then at the end of our passage, Lord willing, next week, in verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. The Lord continues to care and provide for even his sinful and fallen creation. He continues to sustain them. He makes promises to them of a hope and a future. But none of that is possible if they do not acknowledge their sin. And they can't even do that without God's help. Their confession is the beginning of reconciliation with God, and God draws that confession from their lips. I'll wrap us up with some of the words from Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Brothers and sisters, each of us to a one are utterly dependent upon the Lord our God. Left to our own devices, we are like Ezekiel's dry bones, utterly without hope or strength to save ourselves. Like Adam and Eve, if they had been just left to their own devices in the garden, they would have just kept perpetually cowering and recoiling from the presence of God. Because of their own sin. Because of our own sin. They would have been unable ever again to enjoy any kind of communion with our Creator. But by God's grace, He has not left mankind in that estate. Just 
as he did with Adam and Eve, where they sin, and it seems almost immediately God's walking in the garden. He doesn't even let them go a night wrapped in these fig leaves. God comes to the garden. Where are you? He knows what they have done. And it is horrible. But he condescends. He comes down. And just as he did with Adam and Eve, he does for us. He walked with us in the garden and called to us, where are you? You whom I have formed, you whom I have known from before all time, where are you? What have you done? Have you sinned against me? And we all know the answer to that question. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one good, not even one. How did God condescend and come to us as he did for Adam and Eve? Through the second Adam, through Christ. He doesn't leave us to wallow in our sin and our own wickedness. He comes in the form of a man who humbles himself even unto death, death on a cross. And in the cross of Christ, he comes and says, what have you done? Your sin, what have you done? Not with this thunderous roar of judgment, but this father who wants to see his child reconciled. What have you done? He calls for us to confess our sin. And then he provides the only possible reconciliation for our sin. That being the perfect life, death, and resurrection and glorification of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we'll, Lord willing, see next week, there is hope to be found for us sinners. But only if we are able to recognize and confess that we have sinned against God. If we try to come up with excuses, if we try to pretend what hope do we have? I don't need God's help. I can, I can make myself fig leaves loincloth. There is hope for us, but we must confess our sin and we must confess our need for a Savior who can save us where we cannot save ourselves. Let's pray. Oh Lord, just like Adam and Eve, each one of us have sinned against you. Each one of us have betrayed you. The very one who created us, the very one who sustains us, the very one who gives us the breath in our lungs and keeps our universe in motion, we have betrayed you and we have sinned against you, oh God. And Lord, may each of us confess our sin before you. Let us give our sin no quarter. Let us lay it bare before the light of your truth that we could see it shrivel and die. But Lord, that is only possible because again, just like Adam and Eve, you have come and condescended to us and you have 
made yourself known to us and you have called out to us, where are you? We are here, O Lord. We have sinned. Lord, may the sweetness of our sin turn bitter in our mouth. May the disgusting vileness of our sin become so abundantly clear to us that we would not even believe why we would have chosen it in the first place. And let us confess it by name before you. Let us give it a name. Let us say it. Let us confess it to you that you may then forgive us. And Lord, we thank you that we, if we are in Christ, then you have forgiven all of our sins. Every sin we have committed, every sin we are committing, every sin we will commit, Lord, it is found in Christ to have been forgiven. But even forgiven sin still finds great power over us if we are not willing to confess it. And Lord, we thank you that you have not left us our own, to our own devices, nor have you wiped us off the earth, both of which you would have been full within your rights to do with your creation that has turned its back on you. But you have not left us. You have not forsaken us. No, you have loved your people so much that you would reconcile them to yourself at the cost of the very life of your son Jesus. That he would take in himself the punishment that we deserve. Lord, we thank you. We honor you and we glorify you. We pray that this would be our hope. That this would be the strength that we would need for our spirit. That if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive them. That none of us are too far gone. That none of us can hide ourselves so well that your spirit cannot see us. Lord, you have been so good to us. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.